0: You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. That's great. Father, would you answer this prayer that we've sung that you would increase, that we would decrease, that you would be greatly honored at your work in your people, so that what comes from our lips is echoed in our lives. We ask for your help this morning as we come to your word, that you'd continue to teach us for our good, for your glory, for our hope to be strong and renewed, our faith to be strengthened. Would you make yourself glorious among us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, River City. Um, we have a fun text today, so let's get after it. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, you can... Slip your hands up, there's some folks coming around that would love to give you one. Uh, Some of the scripture will be on the screen as well, but we'd love to have you read along. As I've said um, nearly every week in this series, Paul's goal here is to encourage uh, persecution and loss and confusion about what's going to happen at the end and a culture that's hostile to their faith in Jesus. All of these things Have somewhat, if I can say it this way, a depressing effect on the Thessalonians, or at least it could. So, Paul tells them things like hold fast and don't give up and keep believing what is true and keep loving one another and keep loving your neighbor, keep working faithfully, keep trusting that all that God has promised will be realized according to God's sovereign will and in God's timing. There's this. Continual encouragement and reminder. And Second Thessalonians, as we said last Sunday, is kind of a wrap up or of all of that Paul's tried to encourage the church to this point. Specifically, covering uh, three areas. Uh, Chapter one, Paul's encouraging them uh, in the midst of persecution and what God's justice looks like. Chapter two, Paul's answering questions about confusion uh, about Jesus and his return. And then in chapter three, there's an exhortation. a, A correction a challenge some teaching on those who are idle and here in second Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul tells the church right away at the beginning of this chapter to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed now Paul's specifically addressing some anxiety if i can use that word that they're feeling about the when and the what of Jesus return there are questions and rumors circulating now and so there's concern and we'll talk about that here in this text because that's the, the grounds that Paul is, is addressing. But, but I want us to also look at this text in the, the broader context of Paul's letters here. In, in all of these areas of concern, in persecution and suffering and confusion about the future, uh, uh, in unrest and the decay of the culture around them, or even the slow growth that they might be experiencing in sanctification because it's taking time for them to grow and they might be frustrated by that, Paul's message to them kind of throughout this, these, both these letters is to not be easily shaken. It kind of comes out here in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. Don't be alarmed. Don't panic. Don't be quickly shaken in mind. So, so my hope is this morning as we look at specifically some of the details around Jesus' return, which Paul addresses, that we'd also look at this text kind of broadly with this broader encouragement as well. Because for us, here's the question, right? What are the things that tend to cause us to be alarmed? What are the things that tend to shake us? Maybe like the Thessalonians, uh, it could be questions and concerns about future end times scenarios and events. This can cause us to be alarmed, right? We seek to understand what's happening uh, in light of what we know. And we look at the world around us and we're like, okay, how do we know what's going to happen? Right? Right? Um, I, I, I tend to think that the cycle of breaking news that is constantly in our view, I mean, without speaking lightly of legitimate and serious things, I don't want to speak lightly of, of legitimate, challenging things in our, in our culture and in our world, but, but this constant, every day, sometimes every hour, notification, something up in our face, we're, we're being told that something else is wrong and something else is broken and something else is trying to kill us, um, and something else that we need to have an opinion about right now that is an unchanging opinion, and you better have it right now, right? Like, is this just me, or do we all experience this to a certain extent, right? It, it, and I'm not saying there aren't things that need to shake us away from our self-comfort and our, and our kind of myopic view of life sometimes. We're very self-centered as people, so sometimes we need to be confronted with things that are th- sometimes shocking to get our attention, to break us out of our comfort zones, to break us out of our little myopic view of ourselves But that's different than a stoking, putting logs on the fire of fear and anxiety sort of way, right? There's a difference, and sometimes it's hard in the breaking news cycle of the world in which we live and information at our fingertips to draw that line. Maybe you too are alarmed or shaken and have concerns about the culture or about the world and its brokenness. See, all these things cause us concern, And that can be okay. And I think Paul is saying in this, like these are legitimate and real things. Concern about persecution, concern about what's going to happen in the end, the, the reality of the culture around you. It's okay. Deal with them, process them, examine them, listen and learn what is the spirit of God trying to teach you in the midst of all that, but don't let these things derail you from what you know to be true. Essentially, Paul is saying this. For this text and for our time this morning, don't be quickly shaken, but stand firm and be comforted in the truth. Don't be quickly shaken, but stand firm and be comforted in the truth. So let's read our text today in light of that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's only 17 verses, so it won't take too long. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's our text today. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure. In unrighteousness. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is God's word for us this morning. Our big idea from this text is this, to not be quickly shaken but stand firm and be comforted in the truth. And so Paul's addressing um, concerns about Jesus' return, specifically here in chapter 2. And he kind of presents the text in this way. If he's telling them to, to uphold or stand in the truth, what are the truths that Paul is highlighting? And I've just picked three of them from this text. Stand firm in the truth that, one, Jesus will return. Two, before he does, there is a rebellion of sorts. Certain things will have to take place. Paul says, and that the result of those events, when Jesus returns, are, are very distinct. There, some will be deceived because they refuse to love the truth, and some will be glorified because they believed the truth. And then Paul closes with a, with a prayer or a benediction, as he's done in the end of chapter 1, here in the end of chapter 2, and we'll do again at the end of chapter 3, meant to encourage them away from fear and anxiety and toward comfort and strength. So let's tackle this first truth that Paul's encouraging the church to stand in. Uh, first, the truth that Jesus will return. This one is, is implied a little bit here. Let's read together. Starting in verse 1, he goes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. Paul is speaking here of the second coming of Jesus that he's already addressed in 1 Thessalonians. We've talked about that. Paul continues, We ask you, brothers and sisters, as That that word has that whole church connotation. Paul's still talking to all the Thessalonian brothers and sisters, all the believers there. Verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. What's causing them alarm? He's saying, don't be alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter that seems to be from us. Don't be alarmed to the effect or to the uh, rumor, if you will, that the day of the Lord has already come. So Paul is addressing for them... The rumor that Jesus already came and they missed it, Paul says it doesn 't matter where that rumor comes from, if you had a vision or uh, uh, someone told you or you got a letter and it said from Paul, but you were a little skeptical don't be fooled Jesus hasn 't come back yet is what paul's saying you haven 't missed it, and this is interesting because scholars note that almost immediately upon the 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 explosion of the church, the disciples um, being sent out as apostles to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, almost immediately upon their spreading out of the mission, on the heels of the go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, on the heels of that came untruth and false teaching and confusion and deception. Sometimes even weaving out ahead, getting ahead of the disciples uh, so when they'd come to a place, there was already false Words about them. I mean, it happened immediately upon the commissioning of of the disciples. And so Paul is heading this off right here, saying, even if someone says it's from me, if it's not consistent with everything I've already taught, everything you already know, don't listen to it because that's not from me. And he says this, you, you, we'll get to it at the end, uh, next week, at the end of chapter 3, where Paul just says, I've written this letter to you with my own hand, <laughs> which I think is funny. And, and another letter where Paul's addressing concerns that maybe there's, he's not the one who he, he writes it. He writes, uh, look what large letters I'm writing to you with, you know, <laughs> like, hello, this is from me. If it's not consistent with what I've already told you, it's not from me, okay? So Paul says, don't be shaken by this idea that the Lord has already come because he hasn't come yet. And then he says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. Don't take advantage of your fear that he's come for the day, that day, the day of the Lord's return and glory, that day will not come unless the rebellion, he says, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, before we get into rebellion, I want to emphasize that Paul is saying to them, reading between these lines here in this first verse or two, Jesus will return. Like, don't forget that, that he is coming. So this first part of this chapter is a hearkening back to all the first Thessalonians and all the teaching that Paul already gave them when he was with them in person. He gently but directly hammered on the truth that Jesus was coming back, just as he said he would. Just as he left into the sky, he would be returning in glory. And that day was going to be great and terrible, a day of dread and a day of glory. And Paul is saying here, just in this little bit, that hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen still. And I just don't want us to miss that because he doesn't address it uh, in full in this chapter. Paul's reminding them that the promise that Jesus will return, that we will all be gathered together to the Lord... He even references that in verse 1. It harkens back to chapter 4 of Thessalonians 1, where the dead in Christ will rise, and those that are living at the time will be gathered up for a meeting in the air with the Lord as he comes to reign as king upon the earth. And Paul's like, don't forget that. Don't be shaken with the thought that you may have missed it. It's still coming. And the path to that day, we're on it. (laughs) It's begun. It's begun. So that's the first simple but significant truth that I think Paul's giving them to stand on. Remember, he hasn't come yet. He is still going to come again. We're still on our way towards that day. You haven't missed it. And then one of the things he references as a a help to them, how do we know we haven't missed it, is found in verse 3. Paul just straight up tells them, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And now Paul introduces this idea of rebellion, that certain events must take place before that day, Is part of how we know that that day hasn't yet come. So, if the first truth that Paul's anchoring them to is the reminder that Jesus will come again, the second one he's anchoring them to is that stuff's going to happen first. There will be a rebellion. Let's read uh, from the middle of verse 3 through verse 5. For that day will not come, Paul writes, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5 Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you all these things? Okay, now this is the juicy part of the text, right? If we have this event, if you will, that includes rebellion and a man of lawlessness as its two components, Paul says. This rebellion, which literally kind of translates as apostasy, which is a rejection of the truth, a walking away, an intentional rejection, a disavowing of what was once deemed true, a rejection of the revealed Word of God, a rejection of Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, and the exaltation of self as God. Paul introduces a character to this story In this rebellion, this apostasy of the man of lawlessness, also called the son of destruction, maybe your translation says the son of perdition, and tells us a little bit about this man. He opposes any and all gods, exalts himself in opposition. He proclaims himself to be God. Now this is interchangeable, I believe, in the New Testament with this phrase that we read in other places, Antichrist, which is very easily translated anti- Christ <laughs> against Christ pretty straightforward those are helpful when they're that clear right John in 1 John chapter 2 writes this children John writes it is the last hour and as you have heard that antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come therefore we know it's the last hour John's referencing this these events to come before the end and he talks about antichrist as a standalone and antichrists as plural so, so the, the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction who i believe is an antichrist one who is against christ which is one who sets himself up in opposition to god that's what paul's talking about now it's it's generally understood that at least part of what paul's talking about here in this rebellion would be pretty familiar to anyone in of New Testament time, reading and listening to what he's talking about in general. This idea of rebellion, of persecution, false teachers rising up with the goal of discrediting God, discrediting the apostles, the message of the gospel, defaming God, speaking ill of his followers, seeking to deceive people and turn them away from the truth. This is not a concept that New Testament followers of Jesus would have been like, I, we've never heard of this before. No, they, they lived in this. And they saw it happening before them. So us reading it now, this is, there's a consistency here. It's all over the New Testament. Matthew 24, that lawlessness will increase. Mark 13, in a number of places, that there will be wars and rumors of wars, that there will be those who attempt to lead believers astray, that there will be rising up of false prophets and false Christs that will perform false signs and wonders. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, some will depart From the faith. They will apostatize. They will rebel against the faith. They'll be deceived. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy a second time and says, godlessness will increase as we near the return of Jesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which I put up on the screen, Paul writes this, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away It's the important word in that phrase turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Notice the order of operations there. They turn away from the truth and end up wandering off into some other place. See, the picture here is one of a rebellion that has been set in motion. And verse 7 tells us that this mystery of lawlessness, the, the hidden activity of this lawless one, has begun. And and that there is a revealing, if you will, of this one called the man of lawlessness, one who sets himself up in opposition to God. Now, we're not going to get completely into the weeds on this today. However, we are going to get a little bit into the weeds because it's important. So let's go there together. Look at verse 6. Paul ties together this man of lawlessness... And in verses six and seven, the something or someone who is restraining this lawless man until the proper time, okay? Now, there are many, I will argue, Bible-believing, godly, scholars who have a handful of different interpretations as to this man of lawlessness and to what or who it is who is restraining this lawless one until the proper time. That being said, we'll get to it in more detail, but God's given us his word and the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to just address a few things of what it could mean. Some scholars suppose that the one doing the restraining is perhaps uh, an evil spirit or a demonic force at work until he is finally put away for the final bad guy to be revealed. Um, This is not to demean the position, but as a way to understand it. If you're familiar with Star Wars lore, uh, trust me, there's a point. The idea of the Sith, like the anti-Jedi, right? There's always two of them. One master, one apprentice, and the apprentice always kind of gets stronger and then kills the master and then takes on an apprentice. And so one one scholarly approach is that like Satan is kind of like biding his time or there's like increasing evil that just kind of keeps leapfrogging until finally the, the, the bad guy is finally revealed at the end. Um, that's one, some scholars have said that, maybe that's what's restraining, you know, this ultimate evil till the end. Some scholars suppose that this restrainer, uh, is the, kind of the remnants of Jewish religion at the time. At this time, when Paul's writing this, the the temple is still in operation in Jerusalem. Outside of the curtain that was torn when, when Christ was crucified, which it's likely that they put up a different one, um, Jewish temple worship is still happening and happens all the way up until 70 AD when Jerusalem is sacked essentially and the temple is destroyed. And so maybe some scholars say maybe this is abiding of time in Jewish religion until the temple is finally destroyed and that kind of looses something. Some scholars uh, refer to this restrainer uh, the one who restrains it is possibly the church who's in place here on earth until the godly are taken from the earth just before the end. That's another interpretation of this. Now, just to be totally clear, I, I think there's some defensible components in those. H- however, I personally don't find them as compelling. My my take is it leans this way: that there is one who is restraining evil, and that's God Himself. Or maybe uh, re- you will read about it in the Scriptures and sometimes the Holy Spirit is the one, as the person of the triune Godhead, who is doing the restraining. Sometimes it's referenced as an, an archangel. But, but the reality is that God, in His sovereignty, has Satan on a leash. In that, he is restrained in such a way that he won't be able to hinder or keep the gospel from doing what God said it would do in Matthew chapter 24, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So so my personal take on that, and we can argue about that, that's cool, um, that the activity of Satan and his lawless ones are under the restraint of the sovereign God of the universe in order that although Satan is still at work, and we'll get into that here in a second, he will not be able to hinder, ultimately, God's will. He's not twisting God's arm. God still is the ruler yet. And that at a time determined by God, he will loose whom he will loose. Now, verse 9, Paul reminds them and us, that the coming of the lawless one of the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan. Just be real clear on that. This is Satan at work. And as one who is an Antichrist will, with Satan's power, all, when it says all power, it's referencing all his power, will perform false signs and false wonders and false teaching will come from his mouth. Okay? Now, there are other mentions of this Antichrist and Antichrists and the spirit of Antichrist in 1 John and 2 John, and there's pictures of this the one who exalts himself in order to deceive the nations in the book of Revelation. There's references in the book of uh, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, in the Old Testament as well. The challenge for us is we're looking at First and Second Thessalonians, which is why we need Scripture to interpret and understand Scripture, is because Paul doesn't say a lot about this in other places. So if we were just reading what Paul has said, we'd go, I have a question, Right? But Paul does say two things here that catch my attention. Look at verse 5. Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now so that he may re- be revealed in his time. This tells us that Paul had spoken in some detail while he was with the Thessalonians. Don't you remember what I already told you when I was with you? That phrase, and you know, like you already know, if I could say it that way, which gets to the larger point from this chapter and from this whole letter, rather than being unsettled by what you are hearing or reading or speculating. Instead, Paul's saying, stand firm in the truth that you already know. Because we don't have the in-person teaching from Paul to the Thessalonians. It is altogether possible, even just based on verse 5, that Paul told them, okay guys, the man of lawlessness is blank and is being restrained by blank. And they were all writing it down in their notebooks in Paul's end times class. And none of those were preserved for us. None of them. Because we weren't there. He says, what I already told you. And I'm like, can you fill us in, Paul? Right? And this is where our, what we believe about God's word, our doctrine of the word of God, is very important important. Here's where it comes up. It comes up here because we believe that God has preserved his word as he intended for his church and that all of it is inspired, that all of it is without error, that all of it is useful for instruction and correction and the building up the training and righteousness of his people. If God wanted to tell us more than he already has, he would have. So we can dig in and study and compare and wrestle with what we have in various parts of God's word. That's not to say it's all equally easily understandable or we equally can understand it and apply it all just at a snap. It's worth wrestling over and studying and growing in and asking the Holy Spirit to teach us as our counselor. But my encouragement, which I think is a Paul's encouragement, which I think is a biblical encouragement, is to not get so into the weeds Of speculation that we missed the point. And that is, I think, this is ultimately Paul's point that we can pull from this, that in the last days, rebellion against God and rejection of God will continue. That there will be many who will gather for themselves, honor and worship, those who would set themselves up as God. Let me just be really clear. That is a lowercase g, okay, who would see themselves as mediators to the divine, that they have some kind of spiritual connection but who are indeed agents of Satan who are ultimately being used by him in order to deceive? This is happening in first century Thessalonica. This is happening in 21st century America. Okay? And that there will be a culmination of this evil and this spirit of Antichrist, which will rise to a point when there will be a visible and clear confrontation between this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, and the true Christ. And as Paul says in verse 8, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Amen? Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, but that sounds like a good use of the word awesome. That he will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing as he appears in glory and it just vaporizes his enemies. Right? Now, there are deeper weeds to get into here and you might actually take issue with, with what I've given as, as an application or as an interpretation of, well, what about that man of lawlessness and what is the restraining force and all that? We can, okay, I am not inerrant. Let's be real clear on that. God's word is, but the reality is we don't have time to get a whole lot deeper into the weeds for, for, well, two reasons we don't. One, we just don't have time. And two, it may not be fruitful. It's not bad to study and learn. I want to be very clear. It is worth the time to wrestle over and let God's word confront our presuppositions and challenge our understanding and teach us to wrestle with it about these things, provided we don't lose sight in our study Of what is certain. That our study drifts towards what is certain and doesn't drift us toward speculation and myth. Okay? So Paul is anchoring them to this truth. Don't be surprised. There will be a rebellion. It'll build and it will come to an end when Christ comes and melts his enemies, essentially. Truth number one Jesus will return. Truth number two you haven't missed it, that his return, because there will be a rebellion complete with a man of lawlessness. And truth number three, that there will be different results or outcomes when Jesus comes back. Look at verses 9 and 10. They tell us that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, all his power, in false signs and false wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, get this, because they refused to love the truth. So, those who will be deceived are deceived because they refused to love the truth, Paul says, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. Now, some people give, uh, have issue with this text and they're like, well, wait a minute. God sends the delusion? I'm confused. This text has echoes of the book of Exodus. Go with me for a second. God's people are in bondage in Egypt. And God raises up Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Exodus tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart to Moses, hardened his heart against the people of Israel, hardened his heart essentially against God. Pharaoh rejected the word of the Lord through Moses and hardened his heart against him. And Exodus tells us that God gave Pharaoh exactly what he desired. That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He obliged Pharaoh's desire and hardened his heart as well. So that's where I think this is helpful. Because there's sometimes anxiety or fear in, in the whole like thinking about Jesus' return. There's fear in the unknowns of what the end will be like. And I think ultimately for us, there's a little bit of fear in being deceived. I think for many people, as it relates to the end times and Jesus' return, there's a fear of being deceived in the end. Like, what if I get fooled in the end? What if it catches me by surprise? What about things like one world governments and, and numbers on our foreheads and buying and selling and increased persecution and tribulation? All, all these things that could cause us. What if this all happens and I didn't even know it and all of a sudden, whoops, and I'm on the other side? Paul says, don't be easily shaken by this. Verse 10, the wicked will be deceived because they refused to love the truth. And verse 12 says, they did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So not only are are those who are being deceived, those who say, no, no, I don't want what God has for me, but they're actively putting in the opposite. They love and pursue, took pleasure in unrighteousness. And in contrast, Paul says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Do you see this? And belief in the truth. There's a work of God to bring salvation, a spirit birthed and a working, spirit working sanctification. And he says, belief in the truth, which is in direct opposition to those who are deceived because they've rejected the truth. Those who hate the truth are the ones who in the end will be deceived by the false power of Satan. But those who believe and love the truth will not be deceived, Paul says. The antidote to being deceived is to love the truth. Let me say that again. The antidote to being deceived is to love the truth. And as Paul says in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he said at the end of the last chapter. That Christ will be glorified in us, in the church, professing worship and and an honor to his name, is being shown to belong to him, and we participate mysteriously in that glory of Christ. And That is amazing. So then, therefore, in light of all this, verse 15, Paul continues, sisters and brothers stand firm. In light of all this, stand firm. Hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, Paul says, by spoken word when we were with you or by the letter we sent. Essentially, stand firm in the truth you've already been taught, which brings us all the way back to where we started this morning, to stand firm and be comforted in the truth. Now, the direct application of this text relates specifically to Jesus' second coming. To trust that Jesus is coming back. Before he does, some things still need to take place and that there is hope and security, a true reality that counters delusion and confusion. We don't need to be worried about that. And so Paul uses this phrase, stand firm in those things. But as I mentioned when we started, the, the larger picture on display, the larger principle at work here causes us to ask the question, what are the things that disquiet your soul? What are the things that cause you to to be shaken? And rather than sinful worry or speculation or playing the unending mind game of what if, anyone else play the unending mind game of what if? like what could happen? I believe the encouragement from Paul is this, in the midst of any challenge, do not be shaken. Stand firm in the truth. What do you already know to be true? So what are the things that tend to disquiet you, to to stir you up, to cause anxiety and fear? And the answer that Paul wants to give is, well, what do you know to be true? And then Paul closes with this benediction of sorts. No, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul closes reminding them of the truth. That it's through grace that we've been given eternal comfort and good hope. A secure, eternal comfort, generous hope doesn't fail us. Hope does not, this kind of hope does not put us to shame. And he asks that Jesus Christ himself, that God the Father, our good and gracious Father, would comfort our hearts in the midst of worry. That our hearts would be encouraged and established, again, all under the, the umbrella of grace, to be faithful in the work to which God has called us. Our anchor to the truth our grace-empowered ability to stand firm in the truth is the antidote to fear and confusion and is a guard against being easily shaken. And I don't know how each of you manage your day-to-day. I don't know if you tend to be more on the worried side personality-wise and, and, or, or if you tend to be more on the, nah, I'm good side. I don't know if that's, the, if that's actually the spectrum is worried or nah, I'm good. But I, I don't know where, where you process those things. But let me just say, standing firm in what we know to be true about who God is, about who we are in Christ Jesus, about the glorious hope of His work in us, through us, and His glorious hope of return are things that we can anchor to because we know them to be true. So may we have the same comfort, the same good hope. May we stand firm and hold fast by his grace that we wouldn't be too easily shaken, that we would not live in confusion and fear, but that we as God's people here at River City would have confidence in what we know to be true about God, what we know to be true about Jesus Christ, what we know to be true about God's purposes and his plans, and for what we know about these things, we are confident then that he will do everything that he's promised. So our hearts don't have to fear. Why should we be afraid? Friends, Second Thessalonians 2 is a call to us to not be easily shaken. So, so let us stand firm and take comfort in what we know to be true. And may this be so among us. Can we pray? Father, I thank you that you are gracious with us. You would not need to tell us to have courage if we did not have fear. You would not have to tell us to stand firm if it were not already obvious that we are so often weak. We thank you that you will never leave or forsake your people. And so we ask for your help by the Holy Spirit to give us insight and discernment and understanding, to be able to readily fend off the lies and deceptions of the enemy who seeks to destroy us and that you'd encourage your people in the truth of all that is true about who you are, of all that is true about what you have done and all that is true about who we are in you and all that we have through you. Would you encourage us as we come to the table that the simple reminder of bread and juice would be a reminder of what Christ has already done to purchase our forgiveness and to offer us eternal life. Would you encourage our hearts now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.